down Are they gonna bail you out Or just run you around They said you should have a house The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man or two of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life and times get tough. Or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 488 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Monday. Uh, it's going to be my first full week back after being gone for Jesus. You know, I think I was gone for you guys for like four days, uh, but I was gone for myself for about nine because I put a bunch of shows in queue for you. And of course, we had Chipmunk there, and uh, I didn't come in Friday with a show, but that wasn't even, it didn't really feel like work, you know, um, on Friday because it was like do a show on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we're off, the wife's home. The wife was home on Friday, too, you know, so that you have family in the house, you normally don't. That kind of uh, interferes with getting any work done. So I feel like I've been off forever. And I needed it, but I'll tell you what, it was too long. You can actually take too long of a vacation. Um, I was needing to get back here and be productive again, and this wasn't the best time of year for vacation. It's about, oh, 104 degrees, I think, is the projected high today. So uh, when it's that hot, you don't want to do a lot outside, and I'm not a guy that likes to sit around inside. So glad to be back with you. I will let you know I'm going to be taking vacation again, believe it or not, around the 20th of August. We're going down to Sanibel, Florida. This is going to be a real vacation, laying on the beach and uh, doing what normal people do on vacations instead of running around in the woods. Uh, but uh, it should be a lot of fun, and uh, I think I'll have enough stuff in for you. You won't miss maybe but a day or two. But until then, we'll be here every day with you with a show, Monday through Friday, like we always have. And uh, today, since it's a Monday, we're going to be doing your questions and your feedback by email rather than the call-in shows like we do on Friday. Uh, got a bunch of great stuff up today. I got some questions on concealed carry. I've got, uh, some questions on buying land and what to look for. I, I've got some, uh, questions on what a, uh, lame duck Congress and Senate with a supermajority might do after the, uh, bloodletting in the elections this November and, and a bunch of other great questions. So we'll get to those in just a second. Let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and make sure that the show is here five days a week, Monday through Friday, most of the year anyway. Uh, sponsor of the day number one, Survival Seed Bank from Solutions and so- from, from Solutions from Science. What is a Survival Seed Bank? I'll tell you what it's not. It's not a big pile of seeds for you to buy and plant tomorrow. It's a big pile of heirloom seeds, which, uh, of course, you can save and replant year after year, specially packaged to last a very long time, as in up to 20 years, and remain viable. So just like you might go out and buy Mountain House or Providing Pantry or Yoders or some other type of prepared uh, long-term storage food item, and you wouldn't necessarily throw it on the grill tomorrow, though, of course, you could throw um, Mountain House... Uh, you know, pork chops on the grill tomorrow, they would be great. Your guests wouldn't even know that they were freeze-dried pork chops uh, when they were properly rehydrated and cooked. They would taste fresh. could be used that way, but they're for a different purpose. That's what a survival seed bank is for, to make sure that you always have a viable seed supply into the future, uh, regardless of what happens. So check out the survival seed bank. Next up today is uh, silverandgoldshop.com, run by the wonderful, in the words of the audience, Mary Beth Maidmont. Absolutely outstanding selection of silver and gold items. Remember, I believe that silver and gold should be part of your portfolio. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to 10% of your savings should be in silver and gold. That's my view. You can do more, you can do less, but I'll tell you what, do something, because we cannot rely on the value of our money for the long-term future. Because our government has decided that the way to solve all our problems is to continuously print more money and try to make inflation as a constant. They don't always pull that off. We'll talk about that a bit later today. But one thing we do know is sooner or later it is the end result. So make sure you're hedging at least a little bit against inflation with some good quality silver and gold. And I'll tell you what, these awesome silver rounds, they make great gifts for those young kids that have one too many toys, knickknacks, and you know other random crap. You know, You have nieces, nephews like I do. And uh, for their birthdays and Christmas, everybody gives them toys. You go to their house, and it looks like, you know, it looks like a, a nursery school. 
uh, I started giving them silver and gold coins, and uh, I was surprised at how well received it was, not just by the parents, but by the kids. So consider those for gifts for the kiddos. Put something in that hand that lasts rather than a piece of plastic crap that will be gone tomorrow. Next up, check out the Survival Podcast Gear Shop. We have shirts, we have hats, we have challenge coins, we have all kinds of cool stuff and new things uh, slated to be into the store soon. So check out our gear shop. You'll find that along with our sponsors' banners at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Last but not least, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. Discounts to about 20 different vendors. Uh, you'll also get 20 videos that are by me that are available nowhere else, and you'll be supporting the show at a whopping, what, 20 cents an episode. So you listen to the show, you think that is worth 20 cents. Consider joining the MSB. With that, let's go ahead and uh, get into the main topic of today's show. The first question actually is a holdover from last week. Guy asked three questions in one email, and they're all good. So uh, I answered two of them in the last show I did like this and decided to hold off this one and kept it in the folder in queue so I could do it today. And he says, what is a good form of solar power that will fit into backpacks? I'm looking to recharge basic navigation system phones, maybe a handheld game. Uh, I see a lot of products. I was just wanting to know what you recommend. All right, well, there is a product called Solio, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a cool-looking little fold-up product. It kind of folds out and looks like a flower. And uh, I've been playing around with a bunch of different uh, portable solar charging products, and this one I recently uh, actually got to put my hands on and mess around with for the first time when I went to Big Bend with Brian Black from ITS Tactical. I'll have to come back in between the next question and talk about ITS Tactical again. I almost forgot something about that. Anyway, Brian had one of these, and uh, I was really, really impressed with uh, its effectiveness. And the ability to know whether the damn thing's actually charging for you or not was nice as well. Uh, they sell for about 80 bucks. I am going to pick one up for myself. I think it's, uh, it's a great product. It, it has uh, a lot of power for the size, lightweight. And um, it, it just seems like probably the best product that I've seen so far. I'm also looking into and talking to several different manufacturers about putting together a, a solar backpack. You guys have probably seen these for the Survival Podcast Gear Shop. So it would be like a little mini bug out bag with solar panels built into the back of the bag. There's a lot of them out there. Some of them are really good and really expensive. And some of them are really cheap and really garbage. And what I'm looking for is really affordable and really good. And uh, so I'm talking to different manufacturers, looking at wattage outputs, uh, cost, and uh, construction of not just the solar panels and the charging system, but the bag in general. So I'm trying to find something like that for the gear shop. Now I'm Brian Black. I gotta, I gotta admit something, guys. I called him a snake on Friday. Uh, if you didn't listen to Friday's show, here's the deal. I said he made a bet with me about doing push-ups and buying dinner over who could get the most likes on Facebook. And he called me up and said, I didn't do it without your knowledge. You accepted the bet. And I said, what do you mean I accepted the bet? You had this post on your blog. And he goes, look at your Facebook. And look where you said it's on like Donkey Kong, right? And I'm like, but the way you posted that looked like we already had the bet as well. And I think you had the post. Anyway, by the end of the conversation, I'm confused. So Brian's still a snake. And again, I love Brian. He's like a brother to me. So don't take that statement wrong. But he still snaked this one on me. And I'm not sure how. I'm not sure if I was right on Friday when I said he made the bet and then announced it publicly, or if he made me think the bet was already public and tricked me into accepting it. I don't know which one it is, but here's what I do know. I do not want to lose this competition, and Brian is way in the lead on me right now. And I need you guys to go to Facebook, look up the Survival Podcast, not me, the Survival Podcast, look up the show page, and click on Like. And, and become my fan on Facebook so this guy doesn't beat me and I don't end up doing 100 push-ups and buying dinner. Because one way or another, I've been confused by this. So please help me out with that. Let's go ahead and take another one of your questions here. Um, this one comes from uh, Brian. And uh, he says, uh, Jack, you carry a 1911 45 as I do. I wonder what type of concealed carry holster uh, do you utilize when you carry? I'm in the market. Would like your opinion and any advice. Can you please send me a web address too? Thanks for all you do, Brian. Um, you know, for quite a long time, I actually carried, uh, and people made fun of it, but I found it to be a very comfortable carry holster. Uh, it was made by a company called, what the heck was the name of that company? Oh, yeah, Bagmaster. Uh, it's a nylon, looks kind of like a low-end holster, 
But what I liked about it is that the clip was removable and it made the holster ambidextrous. So it could be a strong side or weak side holster for either hand shooter. Uh, it fit well into the uh, pant on the inside of the pant. Uh, you did have to wear your pants about one inch uh, to maybe even two inches larger than normal to uh, allow for the fitting of, of, a, of a gun on the inside of your pants. But that's pretty much the same with any inside-the-pant holster. And uh, it was like a $30 holster. And I had some really nice, two different really nice inside-the-pant leather holsters. And what I found it, it was that whenever I would wear them, especially in warmer times of the month, that leather on your skin against the inside of the pant, um, or even, even like through boxers, would make you sweat in that area. And that's just not a good feeling. And... Um, this nylon seemed to wick away any kind of perspiration. So uh, a, a nylon inside the pan holster. But what I've gone to and I found to be absolutely the best uh, item for this is uh, called the Belly Band Concealment Holster. And you can buy them in several sizes. And basically it goes completely around the inside of your pants, around your waist. And it's got a pouch for some additional things. And it'll carry. And what I like about it is it'll carry pretty much any of a handgun I want to carry. So if it is summer and it's a bit hot and things are heavy and I want to you know, toss a lighter framed handgun in there, no problem. And it also carries a spare magazine. So... Uh, that's what I've gone to is the belly band. And these are like 25 bucks. And folks, I'm not cheap. I'm not going with this lower cost product because I don't want to spend a hundred bucks on a good holster. I've spent a hundred bucks on a good holster. And then I spent 120 bucks on a better holster. And, uh, this just works better for me. Uh, maybe it's because I'm a little bit rounder in the gut than some of you guys out there. Maybe some of you skinny guys, these inside the pant holsters work better for. But this belly band has done, uh, is done very well for me. And again, since it's made out of kind of a nylon, it doesn't create a sweat effect. So, um, that's the product I'm using. And the Solio and the, uh, belly band, uh, from the last, the Solio from the last question, the belly band from this question, I'll put links so you can see those two items on Amazon today, uh, if you want to check them out in the show notes. And with that, let's go ahead and, uh, take another one of your questions. This one's interesting, and I've been getting a lot of uh, a lot of stuff recently about something called the velocity of money and why um, inflation hasn't kicked in yet. And I've been wondering why the surge. So there's something that happens that's kind of unique on this show. Uh, I'll get a topic from a person, and if I don't get another topic, if I don't get anything about it again from somebody else, it means it's it's probably something they just came up with or came across from something old. But when something new surfaces out there in the media. What happens is I get this surge, right? I get like 20 or 30 emails on it in like an hour. And I always know it's out there somewhere. Well, somebody sent this article in and I went, ah, everybody that was asking about velocity of money, this must be where they uh, got it. So uh, let me read a little bit of this to you. And this comes to us uh, from a guy that we'll just call Don because uh, he doesn't say to use his uh, last uh, last name. So that's Don like D-O-N, not D-A-W-N like a girl's name. Anyway, um It's called The Death of Paper Money, and it's an article that recently came out in the UK Telegraph. Uh, came out actually uh, today, uh, and then all of these emails came in with it today, and all these people asking about velocity of money today, this morning in fact, uh, but only one or two actually mentioning the article. So I figured this is where it came from, where people are blogging about it because the article came out. And uh, it's called The Death of Paper Money. And it says, as they prepare for holiday in Tuscany, city bankers are buying up rare copies of an obscure book on the mechanics of the Weimar inflation published in 1974. Here you go. eBay is offering a well-thumbed volume of The Dying of Money, Lessons from Great German and American Inflation, starting bid $699, shipping free. Thanks a lot. The crucial passage comes from Chapter 17, entitled Velocity. Each big inflation, whether the early 1920s in Germany or the Korean and Vietnam Wars in the U.S., starts with a passive expansion of the quantity of money. This sits inert for a surprisingly long time. Asset prices may go up, but latent price inflation is disguised. The effect is much like a lighter fuel on a camp, uh, like lighter fuel on a campfire before the match is struck. So there's an analogy for you. What they're saying is some things go up in price and there's but basic and a lot of times there's the price increases in the distribution channel which I've talked about before, but the consumer doesn't see it because people are holding on to money so they can't raise prices yet. 
And continuing back to the article, people's willingness to hold money can change suddenly for a psychological and spontaneous reason, causing a spike in the velocity of money. It can occur at lightning speed over a few weeks. The shift inevitably catches economists by surprise, and they wait too long to drain the excess money. Velocity took an almost right-angle turn upward in the summer of 1922, said Mr. O. Parson. Reichsbank officials were baffled. They could not fathom why the German people had started to behave differently almost two years after the bank had already boosted the money supply. He contends that the public patience snapped abruptly once people lost trust and began to, quote, smell a government rat, end quote. I'm going to leave the rest of the article for you to read if you want to. You probably should. It's a good article. But here's what I want people to get so that you don't start running crazy and instead of putting that 5% to 10% into gold and silver, put 100% into gold and silver, freaked out, thinking the end of the world is coming, running around like a bunch of chicken littles. First of all, one of the peak inflationary periods that they talked about in this, in this uh, book was Vietnam era and Korean War era in the United States of America. That's not necessarily going to destroy the economy since it already happened twice. We need to look back at that and see what happened. Basically, prices went up. And right now, as I've said before, the entire government and Federal Reserve apparatuses are doing everything they can to try to create inflation. They're begging for inflation. They desire inflation. They need inflation. You think, why? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, if you have inflation, profits for businesses appear to go up. Because if prices rise at the consumer level faster than they rise on the supply level, we increase margin. Even if margin remains constant, so even if I stay with a 10% margin, um, if I go from selling a million to two million, I now have 10% of two million. Even if the money's not worth as much, it looks good to Wall Street because profits are higher. And we'll take any, see right now, the market is so dead, it's so on its back, everything is so flat, anything that looks good, money just flows into. Anytime a stock reports better than expected earnings right now, anytime any little tiny bit of good news, you see a little bump in the market. Why? Because investors are stupid. Because they chase things. And they run over here, and they run over there, and they run over here. Uh, so that's, That's part of it, that inflation in the eyes of government, if it's slow, steady, and controlled, is good. The other reason they need inflation is because of the debt. Let's say you owe a million dollars. Now, our government owes trillions of dollars. Just say a million to make it a number we can all understand. And a million dollars is worth whatever a million dollars is worth today. If we have inflation over 20 years uh, that runs at the neighborhood of about 2% and continues to build on itself, In 20 years, even if we haven't paid any of the amount of money we vote, we've only paid interest for 20 years on the million dollars, we still owe a million dollars. But because of inflation, the million dollars is worth $400,000 20 years ago. So it's easier to come up with a million dollars. So since the United States has this massive debt, if they can inflate the currency, they decrease the burden of the debt. So it's one, to get the economy rolling, and two, because of their own stupidity, they want to devalue their debt through inflation. But they have to control this, because if inflation runs away, then velocity kicks in. Here's what, here's what happens. If you get too much inflation, and people begin to lose confidence in the currency, and they don't just begin to spend more because they have more, because prices are higher, they begin to spend more because they believe that the money is best gotten rid of as quickly as possible. It's going to be so bad and prices going up, I'm better off buying a bag of apples today than tomorrow because I may pay twice as much tomorrow as I will today. When that type of confidence uh, is lost, that's when you have runaway inflation. That's when you have hypervelocity of money. That's when it flows. Here's the important part to understand. I need you to stick with me on this because this is important because it's going to keep you from being misled by every financial guru that claims to know what he's talking about that wants to sell you something. You have to grasp these things if you want to be in control of your own decisions and your own destiny. There are three places that money can be held, and only three. And there's other places, but let's big places. And all three have overlap. Okay, All three have overlap, but all three are decidedly different buckets. Bucket one is the people or the consumer level. That's the money in your savings account. That's the money, all the money that you're holding that's not invested in a company. 
Because if it's invested in a company, the company has the money you don't. You have to sell the stock of the company to get the money back. The money is being used by the market for investment purposes. So it's money you hold. It's money you hold in CDs, cash, and any other way that you're holding money. Okay, It's your basic bank account, your checking account, those types of things. Then there's money being held by businesses. This is the investor's money and the business's um, accumulated earnings. So if I'm Exxon, right now I have a great big war chest of cash because I don't know what the hell is going to happen. So instead of you know drilling new wells, hiring new people, hiring new engineers, innovating new product, innovating new distribution, I'm taking some of the money that would normally go for that, that goes both from my earnings and from investors that buy stock in the company, and I'm putting it aside and I'm accumulating earnings. Now businesses, especially public companies, can only do so much of that. But a private company... Subject to approval from the people that are the investors and the shareholders uh, at, the, at the board level can hold as much cash as they want. So the businesses of the world right now, especially a lot of the private companies, and what a public company does when it wants to hold cash is it buys a private company, leaves it private, and owns the private company and, and allows cash to accumulate down at that private company level. So this can be done in a variety of ways. So businesses can hold on to money. The other people that can hold on to money are banks. And, of course, banks can hold on to more money than anybody else. Now, when I say hold money, I'm talking about all the money they get. Yes, little old lady's savings account is part of the money they can loan against, right? And that is, uh, as we've talked about before, fractional reserve. So if I have a bank and I have a million dollars, I can loan out $900,000 against it. And I only have to hold 100000 of my million in reserves. Now, if that 900000 goes out into the population, it comes back to me in deposits, because people don't keep the 900000 when they borrow it. They spend it, and it comes back into my bank, and another 900000 comes in. I can loan around $790,000 against the 800000 even though I started out with a million. That is another way inflation happens, where a bank takes money, loans against it, it comes back in in the form of deposits. They keep doing this. That's fractional reserve. Banks have stopped doing that because they're not loaning money. They also get money from the Federal Reserve, either directly at a discount rate of about a quarter percent right now, or if they're a smaller bank, they borrow from the bigger bank and they pay an additional quarter, so they're paying a half point on it. The banks normally take that money and they loan it as quickly as they can. That's how banks make money, by loaning it. What they're doing now is they're loaning it back to the government. They're going and they're buying treasury bills. So basically the banks are holding, for lack of a better term, cash. They're borrowing at a quarter to a half a percent, and they're buying debt at 4% from our own government, creating an incestuous circle. In our current economy, it's not just consumers holding money, it's not just banks holding money, and it's not just businesses holding money, it's all three. All three sectors are holding on to their money because they lack confidence in the economy, but not the currency. That's what's going on right now. That is a recipe for deflation, or if nothing else, stagnation. So maybe the prices don't go down, but they don't go up either. Everything just stays, and the economy doesn't grow, and it doesn't move. So the Federal Reserve System, print more money, throw the money in, and all the gold salespeople go, higher inflation, buy gold! And then nothing happens. You look at it and go, what the hell's going on? They print it, and they print it, and they print it, but they, do they send, here's the, here's the question, do they send it to you? The business guy, Joe's Tires, who's sitting on extra money. He could hire an extra guy to run the tire machine, but he makes do with what he has. Doesn't want to risk anything right now. He's accumulating earnings inside the business. Is, did he send it to Joe? No. Joe wants to open a new store. He goes down to the bank. The bank says, Joe, not a good time for a new t- store right now. We can't loan you the money. Joe says, I'm not using my money to do this. I want to leverage money to do this. So Joe doesn't open a new store. The bank doesn't loan Joe the money to open a new store. And the guy that would have got a job making eight bucks an hour, that could at least go out and buy a six-pack of beer and stimulate the economy that way, he doesn't get hired. So the guy that does have the job working for Joe, that sees the guy not get hired, realizes, hey, I could be next. Joe could lay me off too. So he starts to... So see, this is what's happened to our economy now. Because no one has confidence in the ability of the economy to grow. Everybody holds on to the cash. The minute confidence is restored in the economy, then we have an increase in the velocity of money. When people again believe in the economy, they start to spend money and money starts to flow. 
I'm not saying one way is good or bad, but I'm saying the way that the U.S. economy is run under a fiat currency, confidence and spending are the only thing that make the economy run. And there's no, nothing to unstop the money. No matter how much money they print, they can't get it spent because everybody holds it. The only way they could get it spent is to send it to people that will blow it. And when the people that will blow it, blow it, which they've done with tax rebates, right? They give all these people that don't pay taxes anyway a big old tax rebate. Then they go out and buy trips to Jamaica or, you know, blow it on a new car or whatever. And what happens? You think, well, that gets the money flow, but it doesn't. Because the money goes into the hands of the smart people that are still in business. And what do they do with it? They deposit it in the bank and they hold on to it in the form of cash reserves. That's where we're at right now. So velocity of money can increase when confidence in the economy is restored. Or when all confidence in the currency is lost. And there are two different types of inflation. One can be rapid but controllable and typical inflation. Maybe it's two points higher than normal like the Vietnam era or the Korean War era. And that's just where confidence comes back and people start spending money. The other kind is where confidence in the currency is lost. That's Weimar. That's Germany 1920s. That's where people, all this money they're sitting on, they're like, holy crap, i got to get rid of this and get something that's actually worth something for it as soon as possible. So, could we have that Weimar effect? Yes. Could we probably have it in the next year or two? I don't see it. I don't see people so losing faith in the United States currency right now. What it's going to take to do that, because the rest of the world is so tied into us, since the dollar is the reserve standard, is everybody divesting themselves as the, of the dollar. And it's more than just how much, you know, euros or dollars is the, are the Russians holding in their bank account. That's not really what a reserve currency is in and of itself. It's what is the currency based on in the rest of the world. How do people value currency? Right now, the way you know how much a, a, a Australian dollar is worth, or a, a yen is worth, or a rupee is, is, is worth, or a ruble is worth. Uh, the way you know how much all of this stuff is worth is in comparison to the dollar. It's the international standard. When people start worrying more about how many euros is a yen worth, right? Or how many, uh, how many, uh, British pounds is a peso worth? If that becomes the global gauge, that's when you can have a situation where we lose confidence in our currency. I know I went long on this, but God, folks, this is probably the most important economic thing that we can deal with today is understanding this so that we, one, are prepared for the worst, but two, are a little bit more realistic about what's going to happen out there. We don't fall for nonsense. We don't fall for all of these people that specifically that talk to the prepper survivalist niche that tell you the whole world is ending and everything's going to fall through the floor tomorrow. I'm telling you sooner or later everything could fall from the floor, but I'm also telling you to pay attention so that you can make an assessment of this of yourself. So coming down one more time, summing up before I go to the next one. Velocity of currency is driven by two totally different factors. One is confidence in the economy, and the other is confidence in the currency. You can have a strong confidence in the currency, but no confidence in the economy, and you get deflation or stagnation. You can have a strong confidence in the economy, sort of, but a weak confidence in the currency, and you get hyperinflation. You can have a reasonable confidence in both, and you get a standard rate of inflation, which is what our economy is built on. I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it's the way that it functions. And it's the way that it functions into what we consider prosperity, which, of course, is just the erosion of everything that we own. But as far as what you think of as good times, it's inflation. It's inflation at about 2% per year. And it's an unemployment rate in, in you know around 5%. When we have that, we are prosperous. Right? I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying how it works. So hopefully you understand that better. Let's go ahead and take another one of your questions. Here's one totally different to get us out of that because I was really into it for a while there. Uh, this question comes from Daniel. Daniel says, when buying land for a bug out location, is it better to have a river, a lake, or both on the property? And is it, uh, north or south facing slope better, assuming they're all equally available at good prices? Let's start out with a river or a lake. If I can have both, I want both. Absolutely want both because... I could do things like, let's say there's fish in the river, 
and they're kind of a seasonal type of uh, fish. You know, sometimes there's a lot, sometimes there's a little. Maybe it's a river that gets really running high at certain times of the year, and the fish are hard to get when the water's fast and deep. And then when the water is more shallow in the summer, fish congregate in pools and are easy to get out. So what does the lake allow me to do? Well, especially a small pond, let's say an acre, allows me to take some of those river fish, put them in my pond. I have nature creating a breeding pool for me, and I have the fish in a confined space, so they're easier to come up with at a different time of the year. So that's why I want both. If I have to choose, though, between a lake and a river, as long as it's a river, it's not like a, a, a seasonal creek, it's something that's always got water flowing, flowing water is generally a better source of water than stagnant water. It's less likely to be polluted. It's, it's got less purification that needs to be done. So I would rather have a river uh, than a lake if I have to pick between the two. But obviously, if I can have both, well, I'd want both, right? That would, just, uh, that would just make an awful lot of sense. Now, on the south-facing slope or north-facing slope, uh, 99.9 times out of a, a hundred, I would say a south-facing slope. I don't even know where I would say a north-facing slope. Unless it was a place where it absolutely never got cold, and I could get a, a somewhat of a, a thermal uh, cooling effect by being shadowed by the hill as the sun's lower in the sky, but you know then you're you're, you're moving down into the subtropics and tropics where that effect is mitigated. The reason you want a south-facing slope is twofold: because you have greater solar exposure for growing crops, and because as the sun goes lower in the sky during the winter parts of the year with a south-facing slope and facing your house to the south with a big bank of windows in the house, you get a tremendous thermal gain, or in other words, you can passively heat your home on a south-facing slope. It's, it's the best overall way uh, to face your home because in the summertime when you want cooling, of course, the sun is high overhead. So since the sun's high overhead, it doesn't really matter what side of the slope you're on. You're getting the sun directly overhead, and any you know, like any kind of like a patio or a, a trellising uh, effect that you have out in front of your house, any kind of overhang creates shade anyway because the shadows go directly down when the sun is directly up. When you move into let's say past the you know uh, the fall equinox and start going toward the winter solstice, and that sun starts getting lower and lower throughout the cooler part of the year. Now you have that sun coming in at a much lower angle, coming underneath any type of overhang, hitting those windows, giving you thermal gain. On the same effect on your crops, when you're trying to grow fall, winter, and spring crops, you get a lot longer exposure to the sun, and you can do things, well, let's say, by creating rock outcroppings and planting your crops around those and get thermal gain off the rocks. If you're putting in a greenhouse, that effect is magnified. So you would always want to look for, when you have a choice... Uh, in the matter, to have a south-facing slope with the house built long ways against the south-facing slope so that the maximum amount of solar gain can be acquired uh, during that time of the year. Here's another question. Um, guy says, should I pay down my mortgage? His name is Adam. Should I pay down my mortgage when I refinance or hold on to it? Uh, in a recent episode, you talked about people with no debt. Highly liquid assets, cash and silver, for example, and high equity in houses uh, were a best position to withstand coming economic failure. I own everything I have except my house. My only debt is a $250,000 mortgage on a house valued at $420,000. I'm about to refinance for a 15-year fixed rate at 4%. Before we go forward, do that. Do that now. I, these rates are low. They may stay low for five years. They may go up again. I don't know. But they're not going down from here. The prime rate, uh, the discount rate is a quarter percent. It's practically zero. It, it, there's nowhere for it to go down. If you can refinance at three nine four four one four two right now and you're sitting on five or six percent, freaking do it. Everybody do it now if you can. All right. That's, that's a, a no brainer. Uh, it will drop my monthly payment by a couple hundred dollars. I guess it will. Uh, I have an extra 50k in cash I don't need ready access to. Should I pay down my mortgage when I refinance or hold on to it? The pro is my monthly payment would go down by roughly $500, which will reduce my monthly liability during the downturn. The con is that, one, if the house goes upside down during the downturn, the money will be frozen. So in other words, what he's saying is if the value of the house 
decreases below the mortgage rate uh, on it of 250k. Um, if we have that kind of a drop, then then he can't get his money back out of the house, and we'd be better off with it in cash. Here's the reality: unless you're going to walk away from your house, it's it's that way anyway. Because if you can't, let's say you refinance for 250, and the house goes down to 200 in value, that's all you can get for it. Well, if you want to get out of the house, if you want to leave, and you have to sell for 200. What do you think the, the you think the bank's just gonna let you walk with the other 50k? If you're gonna, you know, you can try doing a short sale and all. It's not easy, folks, especially with a house with an initial value of 420k. We get into that kind of bloodletting. I mean, so if you tried to sell it for 200, you're gonna have to come up with the 50k in the spread anyway. Now, if you're gonna walk the house, which again I've talked about not doing this out of a sense of honor, but it depends, right? When I say not to walk the house, I'm saying don't sit in the house for nine months, not pay the mortgage when you could pay the mortgage, pocket the mortgage, and then walk the house. I find that deceitful. But people that get to a point where they just can't make the payments anymore and, and try to work with the bank, and they won't work with them, they say, fine, we're leaving at the end of the month, and they do it. I, have, I, I understand that. I don't like it, but I understand it. But in, in this case, unless you're going to walk the house in the event that it goes upside down, the 50K is still trapped. You just owe it versus already have paid for it. Makes sense. Now, part of we have to do this, though, is completely mathematical. If it's going to save you $500 a month, right, that's every 10 months it saves you $5,000. That means in 100 months it pays itself back. And 100 months is roughly 8 years, roughly. Let me do the math real quick on that so that... I'm completely accurate on this. It's uh, 8.3 years. So here's here's the other way to look at that. It almost takes half of the mortgage to come even. So if you took the $500 that you would send to the bank and send it to your own account, it'll take you eight years to get back to that 50k that you already had. But at that point, you'll owe far less than the 50, original 50k on the house. Because you won't be paying the four percent interest on it, so mathematically, it's it's right at almost a halfway. You know, it's seven and a half years is a halfway point, so it's right at the halfway point of the mortgage. So here's what you have to ask yourself in this situation: Do I plan to stay here? And if you plan to stay there, then it probably makes a lot of sense to go ahead and pay it down. Here's your other option. This is your other option. Make additional payments on, on the house out of the cash reserves over time so that maybe if you can come up with a way to eke out an extra $500 a month to go into savings, basically you're keeping the savings at par. Or if you can only do $250, you are only depleting the savings by half the value. What that would mean is that at the end of eight 8.3 years, you would have 25,000 in savings versus 50 but re have reduced the mortgage by the equivalent value right that's another way to look at it this is a choice that I'll leave to you to make but the way I'll phrase it to you is if you didn't have the $50,000 when you refinanced and the house was was going to be refinanced at 200 versus 250 would you refinance at 250 and pull $50,000 out And if you say absolutely not, I would never do that, then not putting the $50,000 against the house is the same thing. This is assuming you didn't have the $50,000. You're sitting at $200,000, you're going to refinance, you don't have $50,000 of reserve currency. All right? That's where you are. Would you then, and the bank says, we'll loan you $250,000 on this, we'll give you $50K cash, would you take the $50K cash and put it in the bank? Or would you say, no, no, let's just do the 200. I'm cool. That's how you got to look at it, because the math works the same way. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question. Okay, so this next one comes to us from RG, Raymond. Okay, Raymond says, mini crisis on Friday, 7.30. Not 7.30 uh, is the time, but 7.30 the date. The entire ATM debit network in Austin went down for about two hours. Several co-workers were saying things like, what if I need cash? I don't have any cash. There was an air of tension in the room. 
I just thought this is what Jack and other preppers uh, I list and the other preppers I listen to have been talking about. I have some cash in my pocket, so I wasn't worried. I do need to get more on hand because the next failure might last more than a couple of hours. Thanks, Raymond. All right, so think about this. I, this is really more interesting to me about the way people responded to it than the actual mini-crisis. Because, I mean, two hours without ATM machines is not a big deal. You can do it without anything other than oxygen for two hours. Or you can do it without food and water easily for two hours. Unless you're in Siberia or in the middle of the Sahara Desert, you can probably deal without shelter for two hours, right, without extremes. So there's very few people that couldn't go two hours without anything. But what did we see, this air of tension that Raymond talks about, where people are like, oh, man, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? That tension is the real danger in disaster. What would have happened if that would have stayed down for a week? Because the power was out and the banks were closed. How much tension would have, would have risen up there? Now let's add some kind of real crisis to it. Let's add something that has the government putting you into quarantine or lockdown due to a pandemic. Or let's add some sort of terrorist attack that's knocked out a portion of the electrical grid. How much tension is there now? How dangerous do the people within the disaster become? And how great do, does their tension, their concern, their fear outweigh the danger of the disaster itself? It's the mob that's dangerous. It's the crowd that's dangerous. It's the freaked out person that's dangerous. Now, that was never going to happen just because the ATMs were down. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Even if all the ATMs went down, and no one could take a credit card, as long as the banks are open and people could write checks and go get cash, there'd be a lot of problems that would really screw the economy royally. But no one's going to freaking launch a mob attack over this, right? But it does show us what's just beneath the surface for people, what's right there at the edge. There is a fine line between norm normal times and chaos. Very fine, thin line. You know, they, they say it was the thin blue line is the, is the police force, right? Because that blue line, that thin line of men, you think there's a lot of cops out there, but compared to the 320 million Americans that are out there now, there's not many. It's a very small portion of the population. And that thin line of law enforcement officers stands between chaos and normalcy. They're not the only thing that does it, though, folks. In fact, they're not capable of doing it on their own. They're just not. They're just humans just like us. And when people start being outnumbered 100 to 1, it doesn't even really matter anymore. There's other little thin lines out there that separate normalcy and chaos, and a functioning economy is one of them. Another of them is a reasonable uh, belief in health and a reasonable belief in the ability to feed yourself. See, you, you wonder why you don't see these, uh, like these refugee camps in Africa, like people just beating each other to death for food. That's because they were slowly placed into that, that, that environment, or they were born into that environment if they were born recently. But if you go into a city where people normally are accustomed to having food, And instead of having the food slowly decay and having, you know, the people that will steal kind of ferret it out and factions developing and things like that, if you just take it away instantly, everybody starts to go nuts. And that's what this guy, this is what this Raymond guy was seeing. That tension. Again, I don't want to, I don't want to oversell the tension. That tension wasn't going to boil over because it's just the ATM not working. That's all it was. But the response in the individual was you have that thin line, we didn't peel the line back, we peeled back a little tiny thin sliver of that line, and we looked at what was underneath it. And you know what's underneath it? Fear. And that's what drives all the lunacy in a disaster, fear. As long as people have hope and a belief that things can get better, fear remains contained. As soon as we take that away, fear expands, it becomes all-encompassing, and it comes down, i got to take care of me, my family, and anybody else that I've latched onto and made part of my little group. That's what happens in a survival situation when we're talking about an urban breakdown type scenario versus being out in the wilderness. You're out in the wilderness, you're alone. You're seeking other people. When you're in an urban environment, 
other people immediately become a threat, either in reality or in your mind. And it becomes very difficult to tell the difference between friend and foe. And that takes fear into the state of paranoia. And once we're into a state of fear and paranoia and a lack of hope, that's when we have complete decay and breakdown of society. And the thin blue line is just walked across. Cops can't control it. People can't control it. Everybody's out for themselves. Makes me think of the new season of The Colony. We're going to be talking about security tomorrow and what I've seen from the first two episodes of The Colony. Won't say any more on it right now, but that's what you were seeing, Raymond. And it also makes me think of when I was in Arkansas last week, hanging out at our bug-out location. We get a couple channels on a little TV there uh, with the antenna I climbed up on the roof and, and, and mounted up on the roof. And um, there's a place called Clinton, Arkansas. They were without water for four days during like the hottest part of the year. Average temperatures 104 degrees during those days. Uh, no water. I get home and it turns out that the city of Weatherford was without water for a couple days. In both situations, the ground is dry, hot, cracked, and moved, and it's busted major water lines. So right in the middle of the summer, nothing really that big going on. Here you have two cities totally divorced from each other. I mean, we're talking 400, 500 miles, of di maybe 400 miles of distance between these two places. Very different worlds from each other. Most people in Weatherford probably don't know anybody in Clinton, Arkansas, and vice versa. Uh, both cities probably didn't even hear about the other city's problems. Didn't even know that they were commiserating at the same time. But both cities dealt without water. Now, how simple is it to have some water in your house? And it doesn't have to be, you know... The 2012 end of the world. It doesn't have to be hyperinflation and patriots, the coming collapse. It doesn't have to be any of that. It doesn't have to be Red Dawn. All it took this summer for storing water to pay off was it got really hot and didn't rain for a while. That was it. Now, how often does it get really hot and not rain for a while? Do you know why we didn't lose water in Arlington, Texas? And they did in, in Weatherford? It's the way the dice fell, man. That's the way the flip of the coin landed this time. It could have just as easily been Arlington as it was Weatherford or it was Clinton. And it could have just as easily been where you were. It just didn't happen this time to you. So it's important that we keep that tension in mind and we keep the fact that we need to be prepared for the everyday mundane shit probably more so than the big end-of-the-earth stuff. Because these things are going to happen, and it's like spinning a wheel, and you never know when it's going to end up being your turn. And in this case, your turn's not really a good thing. Uh, it can be a minor inconvenience, or it can be disastrous. It's up to you. So yeah, keep some extra money on hand at all times. Glad you're doing that, Raymond. A little bit more probably makes sense. And whenever you're in a mini-crisis, watch for the tension. Don't get freaked out about it, especially in a little thing like this. But watch it and observe it, because it will teach you how to identify it, and in a severe situation, you'll be more in tune with it and better prepared to deal with it. Here's an interesting question. Um, in light of, this comes from Kim. Kim says, in light of the upcoming congressional lame duck session, do you think it's wise to purchase any guns that are considered controversial that we have been planning to buy anyway? Comments, the fervor over worrying about gun regulations has obviously caused a shortage in ammo in some guns. Seems to have simmered down. It's simmered down a lot. I can get anything I want right now, and I couldn't a year and a half ago. So, yeah. Uh, however, it's likely that some of the Democrats will be voted out in November. Some? <laughs> This is going to be a bloodletting like we haven't seen since the Republicans had their bloodlet um, during uh, the last takeover. And before that was you know, the Democrats getting their bloodlet uh, in 94 under Clinton. Uh, voted out in November and have their last days of a supermajority during a lame duck session. Uh, while many Democrats worry about their constituents' views on gun rights, they will worry a lot less when their next election is two years away. We also know the Obama history on gun control, and I believe he would like to institute much tighter restrictions on firearms. Someone was telling me the other day the Clinton-era ban on full automatics occurred via an amendment passed unexpectedly while many of the Republicans were not in session. I cannot locate the history on that. Well, first of all, let's start with the end of that. Here, here's, the, here's the deal. Never take information from someone who's got clearly inaccurate information because the Clinton ban had nothing to do with full automatics. Let me say it again. The Clinton ban had absolutely nothing whatsoever, ever, 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 ever to do with machine guns or fully automatic weapons. It was an assault weapons ban that had nothing to do with the capability or functionality of the weapon, only what it looked like because they were scary. 
I am dead serious about that. There were certain weapons that you could own if you took off the bayonet lug. Like you could have a pistol grip or a bayonet lug, but not both. And they restricted the capacity of magazines. Okay, so the Clinton-era gun ban. Nothing to do with fully automatic weapons. So I, I don't listen to whoever gave you this information because their facts are just screwed. Let's start with the main question. Should you buy a gun that you were going to purchase anyway? Probably, if you have the money and you're not going to go into debt for it. I mean, if you want something and you can afford it and it's the time to buy for you, buy it. Regardless of who's in office. Don't get abused. Don't get abused, folks. In 2008, before Barack Obama was elected, at the gun shows there were signs everywhere, better buy this before Obama gets it. The, the gun salespeople were using Obama as a sword to scare you into buying, and it created buying hysteria. Barack Obama has accounted for more purchases of firearms than any other person in America, as far as I'm concerned. Thank you, Mr. Obama. I appreciate that. The more armed Americans we have and the more armed our Americans are, the safer and better we are and the more freedoms we'll have. So thank you, Mr. Obama. I appreciate you making so many Americans go out and buy guns. To you Americans that did it out of fear, shame on you. Don't do it out of fear. Do it because it's the right gun for the right purpose because you need it and you want it and you can afford it. That's all. What is the odds that the lame duck Congress will pass some kind of sweeping gun control reform legislation between... November and January. Not good. Not good. Because, first of all, the Republicans that survive this bloodletting are going to go on the war path if that happens. The strong pro-Second Amendment Democrats that survive this election sure as hell ain't going to let this happen, especially in the House where the next election is only two years away. Of course, the Senate, only a third of them have to worry about this. But for the House, man, they got to look at this and go, hey, we just got... So anybody that was close to the constitutional side, you thought I was going to say right side, didn't you? Anybody close to the constitutional side of this issue ain't going to cross the line. So it's difficult to do now. Additionally, uh, whether it's it's reality or not, Harry Reid's always been strong on the Second Amendment and, and said he wouldn't allow that bill on the floor of the Senate. So I think we're in a good position on this issue, okay, politically speaking, going forward for some time to come. That said, I still will always be a member of the NRA. I will still always be vocal on this issue. I will still always be vigilant on this issue. And I still know that there's a large portion of our government that wants to restrict all the way to the form of taking away your guns. And there's different levels in between. There's different things people see as reasonable. The problem is the person that is willing to violate the Constitution in the first place, when they come up with a new assault weapons banner, they come up with a new restriction on weapons, and that restriction is implanted, and it doesn't do anything to the crime rate, they say, oh, we have to go a little bit further. We start going to the world of, you know, of living like they do in England, where it's almost impossible to own a weapon in your own home and be able to use it if you need to. You know, it's one thing to be able to have, you know, I get listeners from England, well, we cannot have a shotgun. I've got a shot. I went to the government, I filled the pain, I have a shotgun in my house. And odds are, if you, somebody broke in your house and you shot them, they throw you in jail. It's not just about gun ownership, it's about the right to self defense. That's what the Second Amendment's really all about. But no, I don't see a rebirth of the Clinton gun ban in, in, in November. I don't see a new sweeping gun control legislation uh, by a group of people who have just had their hats handed to them. I do see the following. Very close to, if not, the complete overtake of the House by the Republicans. And a Senate that's almost 50-50. It's going to be 52-51 to 51 on one side or the other. You know, uh, A very close to even Senate and a, a Republican-controlled by a small majority or a Democrat controlled by a very small minority, one way or the other, almost a deadlocked house. And um, that's probably good for us. Uh, the more deadlock we have in our government, the better. I don't want the Republicans completely in control, and I don't want the Democrats completely in control. I want nobody to agree on anything. I want our government to stop doing crap and let the country sort itself out. Every time they touch something, they make it worse. So 
On the question itself, no, I don't think you need to run out, freak out, and buy stuff like we did in 2008, because no, they're not going to take away all your guns between November and January. But if you want the damn thing and you can afford it, go buy it. This is America. That's one of our freedoms. So go act on it. Uh, let's take one more. You know, earlier I talked about how when anything's in the news, uh, it comes in in a wave. Well, Ted sent this, and so did about 250 of you guys. So if you're not Ted and you sent me this story, rest assured I saw that you sent it. And uh, the fact that you sent it is a big reason why I'm featuring it on the air day, because when that many people say something, you know it's important. This story was on NPR and a bunch of other places, and its title is Genetically Modified Canola, quote, Escapes, and quote, Farm Fields. So Genetically Modified Canola Escaped. Shocking, isn't it, that a genetically modified organism would escape? Let me read something to you here. And what, what shocks me is how big of a pass people at NPR give the GMOs, uh, the genetically modified organisms. I, I, you would think that NPR, above all, would, would look at this and go, you know, this is big business stomping on people's rights with patents, endangering us for a profit, you know, but... I don't know why. Apparently, uh, Monsanto and, and their minions and you know ConAgra and their minions and all these big ag companies have successfully bought both sides of the aisle, both in government and in the public. It's, it's unbelievable the manipulation these bastards have. But listen to this. Uh, genetically modified crops are commonplace in fields across the United States. But a new study suggests some plants have spread into the wild. <laughs> a survey of North Dakota has turned up hundreds of genetically modified canola plants growing along roads across the state. The results presented Friday at the annual meeting of the Ecological Society of America in Pittsburgh show the vast majority of feral canola plants in the state contain artificial genes that make them resistant to herbicides. Researchers also found two plants that contain traits from multiple genetically modified varieties, suggesting the genetically modified plants are breeding in the wild. What we've demonstrated in this study is the large-scale escape of genetically modified crop in the United States, says Cindy Sagers, an ecologist at the University of Arkansas who led the study. Few scientists believe that the canola plants pose an environmental risk, but the study highlights the ease at which some genetically modified plants can spread beyond their fields. Canola plants are used in cooking oil and animal feed, as well as some forms of biodiesel, and nearly all of American canola is grown in North Dakota. This year alone, the state will plant over 1 million acres of canola, and most of it will be genetically modified, folks. A million acres of this crap. Roughly 90% of the plants are genetically modified varieties, huh, like I was clairvoyant there, that can resist two types of herbicides, glyphosate and glyphosate. Sagers and graduate students at Meredith Schaefer originally traveled to North Dakota to study the very weeds that the herbicides were designed to control. But perhaps because of widespread spraying, they were having difficulty finding any. Gonna stop there, and I'm gonna leave the rest of this article, which I've read about half of, to you. And it'll be a link in today's show notes to go learn more about it. I'm gonna stop there, because this gets completely overlooked. Completely overlooked. We couldn't find the weeds if they went to study, because they were all killed by the herbicide. Now, if you keep reading in this article, one of the things you'll learn is they're not really worried about the canola escaping, because once it gets out of the fields and into the wilds of uh, the Dakotas and starts trying to grow wild, the, it won't have an advantage over the other weeds. Why? Because they don't spray herbicides where these other weeds are. In other words, unless unless they spray these herbicides is uh, you know in a farmer's field. Where else do people spray herbicides, folks? Long highways? You know, I saw a guy in uh, Plano, Texas, driving around in a truck. Okay, driving around in a, a Plano City truck with a little hose, and he would pull it up along the side of the road, and he was spraying this yellow protoplasm-looking crap on the medians and on the sides of the road. He never got out of the truck. He's just driving along. <laughs> so maybe we don't just spray farmers' fields with herbicides. What we see here is a potential for this canola to get an advantage to become an invasive species. 
I'm not that worried about that because I do think there is some truth to the mitigation in the article with, you know, they don't generally go out in a wild prairie and spray herbicide on it. So the herbicidal resistance doesn't give the canola a huge advantage there. I'll, I'll give them that. Here's what I want to think about, though. Some of the plants they found had GMO genes from two different strains. That means that, you know, Monsanto's Frankenstein uh, canola and ConAgra's Frankenstein canola commingled and reproduced and made a new Frankenstein canola that had both traits in it. Huh. What does that do? And what happens when a normal strain of canola interbreeds with these? What does this do long term? And the, the summation of the article is the canola is not a threat to anything. Maybe it's not. Maybe I'm overreacting to be upset about the canola because it's canola. It's oil. It's I, I don't even use canola oil, and maybe you don't either, and I don't think you should. Uh, I'm not a big fan of canola oil, one because of all the GMO activity with it, but overall, it's just it's not really a great oil. It's been oversold to us as a healthy alternative, and you're much better off with something like olive oil for oil usage. Um, but let's say the canola is not a, a direct threat. It's just not invasive enough. It's not used enough in our diets or, or whatever. Or the, even the GMO activity that they've done with it isn't a threat to us with our diets, the way that genetically modified corn has been proven to be. It's just it just is what it is. And 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 the story on NPR is right. Do we still not learn something from this? Do we still not learn something from this? What I've always said about GMOs that bothers me is that we're tampering with life. And it's not some fundamentalist view that I have here. I'm far from any kind of fundamentalist in any religious or spiritual view. It's a, I pay attention. Have you not watched science fiction? Have you not learned anything, you know, from the, the, the stories that, we, the, that we've tried to make kind of as modern day fables so that people will learn? When we tamper with a gene at something that's alive, we cannot contain it. That's always been my big problem. That it's one thing if you want to make a genetically modified form of corn. And if you want to make it and somebody else wants to eat it, I'm a libertarian and go nuts. But we can't just do that because you can't control your corn. It can pollinate up to 20 miles away. And now my corn, five miles down the road, that I want to sell as pure organic, you've ruined my ability to do that because you've infected it. And you've infected my seed. And is it harmful or not? It's definitely harmful economically because now I can't claim pure organic uh, seed anymore because you've infected it. Is it harmful uh, to the environment or is it harmful to the genes of our human beings that are being reproduced by other human beings? Does it cause liver and kidney damage? Well, there's been some scientific studies that have shown that genetically modified corn has done that. We keep screwing with this. And pretty soon, these genes that we're releasing today that we don't understand the effects of until tomorrow, by the time tomorrow gets here, they're everywhere and we can't get rid of them. Because once you put something out there that uses pollen to reproduce, by its very nature, it's mobile. This is my big problem with genetically modified crops. The patenting of a life form, I have a big problem with in of itself. But the bigger problem is its mobility. And its ability to infect other places. That's what's happened here. Not only did multiple strains of this genetically modified canola escape. I love the term escape. Oh my god. You know, it escaped. It didn't freaking escape! Whoever wrote that headline for NPR should be smacked with a freaking frozen trout. Seriously, right in the face. Whap! It didn't escape. You know, if you put pigs in a place, you put a fence around them, it's reasonable that it would contain them. So if one gets out, you can say the pig escaped. Or your cow escaped. Or your dog escaped. Or a snake escapes. Pollen travels through the air. It didn't escape. It just did what it does. It did what anybody with a brain would expect it to do. It acted as it's designed to act. It didn't escape. It spread. That's what plants do, folks. That's why this stuff's so dangerous. Again, I'll leave the rest of the article for you to read it. And uh, uh, with that, I think I'll, it says over an hour. I'll go ahead and close off today. I have one more question queue, but I'm going to go ahead and skip that one and save it for the next show. I do like this. Again, make sure you tune in tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to be talking about security during a breakdown. 
and some lessons from the new season of The Colony, and let's say lessons that the people on that show have yet to learn, at least in the first two episodes from what I can see. They're starting to get there, but I almost didn't watch uh, Last night I watched the set, uh, episode two of season two of The Colony. It was hard to do because I was so wanting to just smack these people in episode one. I almost couldn't stand to watch it, but it, it seems to be getting a little, a little bit better. We'll save that one for tomorrow, so tune in tomorrow. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life at times be tough before you even fit out. Nobody up there cares, they're living.